Welcome to the Clear the Shelf podcast with Chris and Chris, the show that meets at the intersection of education and entertainment to discuss online arbitrage, retail arbitrage, wholesale, and all facets of selling on Amazon. We'll bring you news, tactics, strategies, insights, stories, and interviews to help you grow your Amazon business. And now, here are your hosts, Chris Grant and Chris Rasick. What is going on, Amazon sellers, and welcome back to the Clear the Shelf podcast with myself and my sapient co-host, Chris Rasick. Today, we have a very special guest, Corey Gannam. Uh, that is at Gannam Corey on Twitter. Uh, Corey's been around for a while. I believe like 2017 is around the time him and I first ever uh, chatted, uh, but now he focuses mainly on wholesale. Uh, he's a great follow on Twitter, drops a bunch of wholesale-focused Amazon knowledge, uh, and recently he dropped about $50,000 in purchase orders uh, over at the ASD show. Uh, and for those that are uninitiated, that stands for the Affordable Shopping Destination Trade Show, which is in Las Vegas uh, twice a year, except for those COVID years when they kind of did a roadshow around the country uh, in places that were open. Uh, now. Our plan today is to get him to spill as many processes, strategies, and secrets that we can get out of him over the next 45 to 60 minutes. Uh, but before we dive in, you know that this show's not free. We don't hide the show behind a paywall, but that doesn't mean the content comes to you absolutely for nothing. If you find some value in the show, please do us the equivalent of a digital handshake Hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player or head over to YouTube and hit the subscribe button. And I wouldn't hate it if uh, you shared a screenshot of an episode that's been helpful to you in your favorite FBA group on, or uh, on any social media channel that, uh, that you post on either. Uh, seeing the podcast rise in the charts and the number of subs go up on YouTube gives Chris and I enough of a dopamine high that we come back and record uh, even more for you guys. So... Uh, honor that agreement, and we'll keep coming back and bringing you guys uh, as much content as we can. Uh, but now, let's uh, let's welcome Corey to the show. Corey, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to come uh, talk shop with us, man. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm looking forward to it. So I'm looking to looking to give you guys as much information as I can here in the next hour or so. Awesome. Well, I always like to lob a softball question right out of the uh, out of the gate. So uh, so who's your best supplier? Uh, but. <laughs> No, I, I do I get asked wanna... that quite a bit on Twitter, actually. You'd be surprised. I, I, <laughs> I can never am... tell if people are joking or if they're, if they're serious. I am always surprised when people have the guts to ask that question, but, but kudos to them. Right. Uh, no, but I do want to set the stage a little bit. So I am going to ask, uh, like, what do you see your estimated annual sales uh, for 2023? What do you expect them to be? And then could you give us a little bit of a brief background about how you got started on Amazon and uh, and all of that good stuff? Yeah, so as far as projected sales for this year, so last year, 2022, we were just, I, I think just over 4.3 million. So the goal this year is to hit 5 million. And so mm -hmm. while that wouldn't be really a massive increase from, I guess, a percentage standpoint, we're just focused on 5 million, but at a, a much higher margin than we did 4.3 million at last year. So really more so focused on the margin. If we do less than five, I don't care as long as we hit our margin goal. So um, that's the goal for the year. Now, as far as how I got, it was the second question, how I got in, into Amazon, like kind of how I got started. Yeah, yeah. What uh, what brought you to the platform? And, uh, you know, I guess what, what kept you here? 
Yeah. So what actually what brought me to the platform was Breezy Resells. So mm -hmm. I'm sure I mean, I know you two are familiar with him. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast are familiar with him. And it actually started when I had stumbled upon a video of his. This was back in early 2017. It was actually January 2017. He was talking about the Gary Vee's 2017 flip challenge, which was pretty popular at the time, just talking about buying stuff, garage sales, yard sales, flipping them on eBay, taking the profit and really just having that spending money. And one of his videos in particular was him going to Marshall's, scanning stuff and then flipping it on Amazon, which as we all know now is, is referred to as retail arbitrage. So that really piqued my curiosity. Uh, that's the model that I went with to start. Shortly after I had moved to Chicago and so I didn't have a car to be going around the retail store. So I was pretty much forced to do online arbitrage if I wanted to continue and did that uh, started using tactical arbitrage and then january of 2019 uh stumbled upon one of larry lebarski watch me amazon's youtube videos talking about wholesale and really the compounding opportunity that that business model presents and january 2019 we pretty much burned the oa boats went 100 percent wholesale and then have been ever since awesome i i love that reezy is a uh Reezy has brought a lot of people to the platform, I think. So uh, many. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, and he's also, he's a really good hang. I got to hang out with him <laughs> in Miami, and we, we talked uh, about a bunch of stuff. And uh, the guy knows so much, not only about reselling, but, you know, about social media and YouTube and how to properly use it. Uh, mm -hmm. I just I just sat there and listened for like two hours. It was, uh, it was great. I'm going to get him on the show here soon, I hope. Yeah, he's got a ton of information. I got to hang out with him a lot, too. And it was cool because when I found him, he was, I want to say he was 5K subs, maybe even less than that. And so I feel like I've I've truly been with him from the start. So it was cool to to kind of meet him, I guess, I guess when you did it, like two weeks ago. So yeah. he was super down to earth, super nice guy. So since since we're primarily a an arbitrage-focused show, uh, can – and. Yeah, Chris will say this quite often. He's a, he's an eternal test buyer and you know, we, we preach, uh, we preach, you know, uh, shallow and wide over going mm -hmm. super deep all the time and protecting the downside. So can you share a little bit about what wholesale looks like, uh, you know, without giving away any, uh, trade secrets or anything? Yeah. So I guess from a, just a business model perspective, wholesale and arbitrage are very similar, right? I mean, you're, you're going into a supplier catalog where on the OA side, that might just be a regular retail website on the wholesale side. That's going to be a legitimate supplier, either price list or usually dealer portal or website. And you're looking for opportunities where products that they're offering are selling well on Amazon, but there's an arbitrage opportunity between the price that you can buy it for and the price that you can sell it for. So really that's what we're looking for. And it is the same at the end of the day across those models. Now the difference, and I think this is one of the, if not the primary advantage of wholesale versus OA, the primary difference is that in the wholesale model, you're buying from legitimate distributors or oftentimes from the manufacturer themselves. And if you place an order for, let's say a thousand units, they're going to come back to you and say, Hey, do you want a thousand more? Or how about this product? Have you looked at this? You know, they're going to try to get you to buy more from them really as much as you possibly can. Whereas when you're doing OA, a lot of times when you're going to these stores, like specifically, I know Target's not reseller friendly. I believe Kohl's, Kohl's is not reseller friendly. Like a lot of these, I guess a lot of the companies you're buying from are not wanting you to buy more, right? It's like you're you're trying to buy 100 units. You want to buy 1,000. 
and they're either not letting you or you know you're having to go to another retail store to source that same product so really wholesale can kind of centralize your sourcing and it also gives you that opportunity component as well uh, sorry the relationship component as well where with oa you don't really have a relationship with with your sources you're more or less a, a faceless customer and whereas with wholesale the better the relationship you have with your suppliers the better your pricing the better your discounts the better your terms really the better your easier your life is going to be all around nice i like that can before we move on to the next question can can you help me dispel the myth that uh you've got to have you know five or even six figures to start wholesale sourcing and things like that yeah definitely and so that is definitely a misconception a lot of folks have and, and i actually got some heat on twitter a few weeks ago because i tweeted something along the lines of you can get started in wholesale with as little as five hundred dollars now that's definitely not ideal if i just had five hundred dollars i would start with retail arbitrage or online arbitrage however it's still very much possible to start wholesale with a small amount of money because a lot of suppliers not all but there are some out there that either have no minimum order or they have a minimum order of say a hundred dollars and they might have free shipping at say a hundred dollars as well so there's not it's not impossible to say that you can go out there with $500, find a supplier with a, a low minimum order, find a couple of profitable products, get your feet wet that way and snowball your money that way. And as you snowball that money, you can branch out into suppliers that have maybe higher minimums or are more exclusive with who they work with. And it's, it's totally possible to start out that way. Awesome. Nice. Hey, uh, Corey. So, uh, aside, Aside from looking for any excuse to go to Las Vegas uh, that I can possibly find, um, can you can you give us a breakdown of what ASD is uh, for those that, that may have are only first hearing about it uh, today? Yeah, definitely. So ASD is one of the largest B2B wholesale trade shows in the world, I believe. And so it's twice a year. It's in Las Vegas and it's at the Las Vegas Convention Center. The there's one in uh, in february which is the one we just went to and then there's one in august every and i believe it's those two months every year and so uh, it's called asd market week and what it is is a lot of different vendors uh primarily in the like the closeout category and as, as far as like they you know they carry closeouts primarily uh, a lot of beauty and fashion type distributors so just a lot of cosmetics wholesalers a lot of perfumes wholesalers those types of companies and then there's a lot of uh, call them like maybe like smoke shop type distributors where, you know, they're they carry tobacco products, they carry vaping products and accessories for those types of products as well. And so there's definitely more types of suppliers that come to ASD, but I'd say that's the three primary categories that they'll fall into. And then they're each hall. So the North Hall, the Central Hall and the West Hall is organized by supplier type. So and I didn't realize this till the end of the show that. So we were spending the majority of our time in the West Hall, which was a lot of uh, a lot of like the toy kind of closeout distributors, more of like the general type closeout distributors. And we made some great relationships there, but we didn't spend enough time in the North Hall, which was all the cosmetics and beauty guys, which and I know some people that went there and did a, and cleaned up, made some great contacts. So bottom line, ASD is just a, a great place to meet new suppliers and also network with other sellers that are there to build their business with, with the suppliers that fall into those categories. Yeah. That, if I'm not mistaken, a few years ago, uh, ASD is where Snoop debuted his, his smoking accessories and, uh, and stuff. So, 
it wouldn't surprise me. It's in fact the so I believe let's see I think it was the central hall was all the like those types like kind of like the smoke shop just type of suppliers and so we actually never even made it to the central hall. I mean there was so much opportunity in the other two halls we just didn't even make it. Uh, however, a couple of our suppliers fall into that category and were there. We didn't even know it. So I was kind of kicking myself that I had the opportunity to meet a couple of the reps that I've worked with and didn't, didn't even really realize they were there. Oh, that's crazy. So uh, this are there more little... snack tables? Are there more snack tables in the <laughs> smoking? I would have to think that there would be. It would only make sense. So <laughs> it's good, the, good the planning, concession. I think. The concession receipts are definitely double in that hall. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no so, doubt. Uh, just a little aside, I happen to have a, a friend who owns a couple of smoke shops back in Ohio, uh, and he gave me a peek at his books, and I was flabbergasted at the profits that he's pulling from physical retail locations uh, running a smoke shop. Um, I'm sure know, the margins are really good. Oh, yeah. And I, I won't say his name, so, you know, he won't get in trouble. He's like, you know, a lot of this is in cash, and you can mm -hmm. kind of take that for, for whatever you want uh, out, of, <laughs> out of that. So uh, now we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about what I think may be the best story that you have out of ASD. Um, I know that you asked for a few minutes of time with the CEO of a distributor that had a large yellow sign that said no Amazon sellers. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and of course, that is what people are afraid of their one they're afraid of rejection uh, of course uh and everyone likes to use the excuse that well distributors don't want to deal with amazon sellers so how did your conversation go what did you say and and how did that work out when you spoke with that ceo yeah definitely i, I can get into that and so just funny quick side note too so at asd when you register for the show and you get your badge at the bottom of your badge in big orange, like neon print is the type of company you registered as. So if you registered as a distributor, it says distributor, retailer, retailer. And so I had my admin VA sign us up for the show. And I guess he chose Amazon seller as an option. And so I guess he chose that option, not knowing that ideally we wanted to register as a retailer. So we get to ASD, we get our badges printed out literally at the bottom of the badge in bright neon orange. It says Amazon seller. So I'm like, all right, well, first of all, we can't have this. So we, my cousin and I borrowed a pair of scissors because he was going with me. We cut that off because, I mean, our thoughts were like, if we're approaching suppliers, they're automatically going to discount anything we say just as soon as they look at our badge. So that was really the first thing that we did when we got there. But this particular CEO, so he, uh, he was standing at his booth, didn't even know he was a CEO, thought he was just a regular sales rep that was standing there. And honestly, I didn't even see the no Amazon seller sign either. It wasn't until we were walking away from the booth after we talked to the guy for about 20 minutes that my cousin said, hey, did you did you notice that sign right there? I was like, oh, I actually didn't at all. Honestly, if I did, I might, you know, who knows if I would have said the same thing. But we just walked up to the guy, you know, we were just talking to him. I noticed the reason we talked to him in the first place is I noticed he was carrying a brand that we had sold in the past, which is Taser, right? Like, you know, think of just like a Taser that you use. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they were reselling that brand. I was talking to him about that brand um and then i just like a lot of these a lot of the asd guys like they're they're not they don't shy away from the amazon conversation like they're not going to give you a hard time about it if you're confident about it and usually if you lead with it so like that's a, a lot of times i'll lead with it i say hey you know we've been doing a lot of business on amazon uh what's your strategy as far as that channel is concerned you know just asking just like an open-ended question like that 
And he was like, oh, well, you know, now that you mention it, so Taser in particular, they just signed an exclusive with a third party, so can't really sell that to you. But he's like, I don't know, like on, on our end, like we've got a couple of brands that we own in-house. And right now it's our, he said it was like one of their employees' cousins or something was running the PPC, which, I mean, I'm sure we've seen that situation a million times before where they, like, they think it's going okay, but they don't really know. So you know, they, they feel like there's opportunity on the table as far as Amazon's concerned with their private label brands. But again, they just don't know what they don't know. And he told me that right now they're, I think, I believe it was the three brands combined and in, their in-house brands are doing about 170K total a month on Amazon. And they've got a couple of products I looked into them that, that are doing really well. And so, I mean, it wasn't even, you know, I didn't pitch him or anything. It was really just, like I said, asking questions trying to understand what their goals are. And also, like I, I even said a few times, like, listen, you know, I don't care if you work with us. I really, it doesn't matter who you work with. The bottom line is you guys need to be educated on on some of the things that you can do on Amazon that, that you haven't done to, to help, you know, to possibly increase conversion, drive more traffic, whatever. So my offer to him was pretty much like, hey, next week, let's just jump on a Zoom. Let me give you a, a couple of pointers on what I think you could do just from a quick glance at your listings. And just, you know, take, I'd literally told him, like, take that information back to your Amazon guy and have him implement it. I don't care. Uh, if you want to work with us, I'm, I'm open to the conversation, but it's not something that I was trying to push in any way. And I think because I was more kind of like relaxed about it, he was very open to it. And he's already gotten back to me and we're, we're going to get a call in the books for this coming week. So he did at one point mention that they have a couple of new SKUs that they're looking to launch on Amazon first. And so he, I mean, he more or less offered us the opportunity. He was like, you know, what would that look like if we had you launch a new SKU for us exclusively and et cetera, et cetera. So bottom line is it went from a big neon, no Amazon seller sign to him, him more or less pitching us on potentially launching a new SKU for them exclusively. So again, it just came down to being open about what we're doing, asking questions um, and just genuinely trying to get a feel for like what he's trying to accomplish and how we can help. That's, that's awesome. So just in case anybody missed it, I, I kind of want to pull two takeaways out of just that story. Um, number one, you dropped a brand name, you dropped taser brand. And if anybody doesn't know, that's a self-defense brand, you know, it tases the heck out of somebody. Uh, it, those are the best episodes of cops, by the way, when people get tased. So, uh, <laughs> that is probably not a brand that I think, or, or even a category that I think a lot of sellers would look into, uh, yeah, you know, definitely not. maybe some fear of, you know, being called up in a lawsuit or whatever it might be. Uh, and so there's one takeaway, look in the niches that other people are probably going to maybe shy away from for one reason or another. Uh, matter of fact, that's the same niche that my first private label, uh, foray was in, in it was a self-defense niche uh, nice. before Amazon took that away, unfortunately. But the other one that you said is you really did what you kind of do on Twitter in real life. You, you offered value up front without expecting anything in return. Uh, and then, you know, the scale kinds of balances itself out. Uh, and mm -hmm. in your situation, it just happened a little bit faster than it may happen for other people. But I think that when Amazon sellers want to switch from OA and RA to wholesale, uh, that a mindset shift needs to happen. You know, when it comes to RA and OA, 
we are just trying to look for any opportunities that we can use to get some leverage to arbitrage. Right. Uh, and maybe that's, you know, using as many coupons as we can or discount gift cards or whatever. But the switch to wholesale, it is a relationship game. And 100%. relationships look totally different than just going ham on as cheap a product as you can. So, Definitely. Uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully everyone took that away. And that's something that I actually preach, especially to a lot of people. Like I've had friends come to me over the years that they've got corporate jobs or they, you know, they're interested in Amazon in some way. And so they want advice on, on what to do and kind of what path to take. And anybody that I talk to, that's a sales guy, that's in a sales role or that in any way, shape or form is inclined towards sales. I always push towards wholesale because I mean, that's all it is at the end of the day. Like if you've been in a B2B sales position before and you've done well, then you can absolutely crush it in wholesale because that's what it is, is, is you're making relationships with vendors and you're using those relationships as your moat in the business, right? Like there's some, some of our suppliers, like I would, I would give them to anybody. I'm like, call these people up, go ahead. Because I know that one, they're either not going to do business with you period, or two, you're not going to be able to get the kind of pricing that we can get due to the fact that we've been working with them for x number of years and i know the guy's family and you know he calls me on the weekends or whatever like there's there's just a lot of things you can do to to create that mode around yourself that really again is more in like the relationship category than anything love that it's interesting um it, i'd like to to hit the rewind button uh, a little bit and if you could put yourself in the shoes of someone going to asd for the very first time uh, kind of a two-part question uh, we'll talk pre-show and post-show. Um, pre-show, uh, we'll tell them should be their approach, their mindset, uh, you know, strategy. And then, um, and even specifically, like, walking through, you know, the, the halls and stuff. And then mm -hmm. um, the second part would be, uh, it, in your opinion, what would a successful ASD look like as they're boarding the plane for a beginner? Yeah, good question. So really it comes down to like pre what do you do pre-show and then what does success look like post-show? Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, so so pre-show, I would do I would do what we did, but I would take it a step further. So pre-show, we made a short list of all the vendors that we thought looked promising just based on their website and their description on ASD's website. And so we did that. We made that list thinking that we were going to pretty more or less go down that list, you know, booth by booth and visit everybody that way. And turns out when we got there, we actually had a lot more luck literally just starting at one end of the room and pretty much going down the lines, right? Because there's just so many suppliers that don't make it on that short list for whatever reason, either they didn't have a, you know, a, a slot on ASD's website or they weren't on your radar for some reason. So it's like that short list is good because you want to reach out to all of those vendors pre-show, right? So like what you want to do 100% pre-show, if you don't do anything else is make a list of, even if it's not, even if you don't go through every vendor in the catalog, pull out like 40 or 50 good vendors from the exhibitor list, reach out to every single one of them multiple times because most of them won't answer the first time. And the pitch, it's not even a pitch, but just the pitch is just like, hey, I'm going to ASD next week or not next week. It should, you should do this a few weeks before you go. But hey, I'm going to ASD in a few weeks. I know you're going to ASD in a few weeks let's basically your goal is to try to get an account opened and get some pricing before you get there because if you can do that a lot of that legwork up front before you get there then on show day 
you you already know what their pricing is like you can have some products in hand that you're ready to purchase with them and because you're at the show and you're meeting them face to face and they're there to make more sales than normal so they're offering bigger discounts than normal then typically you can either get a you can usually get a better pricing on that order at the show and two it's like hey we just started working together two three weeks ago now we're meeting face to face i mean you're that's going to put you at the front of the line compared to anybody else that they've that they've not met face to face, you know, that they work with. So in summary, pre-show is, you know, reach out to as many of these companies in advance as you can set up accounts, get pricing. And then everyone that you got in touch with before the show, make a point to meet with at the show because that, and if you just do that right there, I mean, that in and of itself would make the show worth it. But as far as knowing that, okay, I'm getting on the show, I'm leaving, I'm sorry, I'm getting on the plane. I'm leaving Vegas. What makes this a successful show? And I'd say, in my opinion, it was it's really just trying to have as many making sure like you've had as many quality conversations as you can. So like when it comes to when it comes to the show itself, so like I'm not going to lie, I wasn't on the show floor like eight hours a day every day. I just wasn't like we were on the floor for, you know, a few hours per day max. And so and I was telling this to my cousin when we were there, I'm like, listen, we're not going to be here all day. We're going to be here a few hours each day. So let's maximize it. And maximizing it, in my opinion, looks like having. 15 quality conversations with new suppliers per day and and that good that went for each of us like the first day we were kind of together he was more or less learning from me and we were together the next day we divided and conquered and i said you know if we're going to be here for let's say three hours let's have let's get 15 solid new business cards each and so we did exactly that and you know if we're there for three days then the goal was to talk to i like personally talk to what 45 new suppliers total over there. And I think it was, I was closer to like between 50 and 60. And, and so that to me looked like success. Nice. Yeah. That's, so that's, that's a great tip on the, the pre-show. Cause that's a, that's a warm introduction. You know, if you sent the, well, email, it is, and that's where I'll tell you, that's the reason, the reason I'm going to be preaching that forever is because there was a, so we did that, you know, we had a short list of like 60 or 70 companies. I'll be honest. I got kind of lazy. I only reached out to like 10 of those pre-show. But of that 10, we opened accounts with a few, but one of those 10 we did, we ended up ordering from, I think we ordered from him twice before we even went to ASD, met the guy at ASD, uh, set, you know, sat down with him, got to meet him, just chop it up in person, did another order at ASD and just has become qu pretty quickly. I can tell it like, going to be one of our bigger accounts. So, uh, and again, that just came from like that pre-show reach out. So if you just do that, that, that alone could be worth it. Awesome. That's awesome. So I'm gonna I'm gonna turn this just a little bit negative for a moment. And this this question kind of comes from Twitter. Uh, there is there always seems to be this cycle of what's popular in the Amazon space. You know, uh, mm -hmm. OA is really popular. Everyone should do OA, and then everyone should do PL. And and we're in a cycle right now where at least on Twitter and, and maybe even Instagram, uh, you know, wholesale is on everyone's lips. Uh, and so what one person is curious about is, do you think that ambitious beginners who are maybe rushing into wholesale are going to maybe irritate account managers, uh, at easier to find wholesale companies, uh, and maybe cause some more, uh, walls or gates to be thrown up for those who are, you know, actually going to do this long-term. So do I think beginners are, are more or less going to spoil it for people that are here for the long term or at least yeah. start to spoil it? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I personally don't think that that's a big issue. I mean, I, I get that wholesale might be trendy right now and maybe a lot of more folks are jumping into it than, than would have previously. But I mean, just like any business that comes into popularity at some point or another, it's like, there's, there's going to be a handful of people that are doing it at a high level. So for them, it's never really going to be, um, you know, those beginners are never necessarily going to affect them. And then there, you've got the people that are, that are trying to do it at a high level and you know that are that are trying to grow their businesses and and i could see those folks maybe causing some issues for them but at the end of the day if you're in it for the long term then you're going to be able to establish yourself in a niche you're going to be able to di differentiate yourself from those people that are more or less fair weather sellers you know that are starting up recently because i mean these distributors and these sales reps like they're not dumb they can typically tell who has been around the block and who is completely new so Again, if if your heart's in the right place and if you're here for the long term, then I don't see that being really a big issue for you uh, as, as long as you continue to pivot, you know, innovate, differentiate yourself and really position yourself in a good light when approaching these suppliers. Yeah. Now, I, I do want to now that you've answered that, I, I do want to kind of throw a little something out there about this. Uh, mm -hmm. And Chris and I sort of discussed this a little bit earlier uh, when we were messaging. I find that it's a good question, but I also find it a little funny because what I'm seeing now, you know, what, 11, 12 years into this game is kind of the same um, irritants popping up again. You know, mm -hmm. uh, six, seven years ago, there was one particular course that everyone was mad at because, oh, well, you know, my supplier got 100 emails and it was all the same. And I think uh, I know which one you're talking about. I'm sure you probably do, you know, and uh, and and I'm like, well, you know, but there's going to be one percent of the people who, you know, actually land the accounts and still, you know, are, are growing and stuff like that. So, right. Uh, yeah, I, I certainly understand where the question comes from. I just I'm finding it funny that I'm seeing these same things cycle back through uh, yet again. Exactly. Well, and I actually answered this question. Somebody asked me this, uh, the same question the other day, but more, they were more so asking about, you know, what will if I find this distributor in my area, won't other people have found them and therefore won't they be too saturated? And my point was, listen, the chances of somebody looking for that exact supplier and that exact category and that exact niche in your exact area, one, the chances of that even happening in the first place are small. But let's say that it does happen. Let's say five people have that same supplier as you. Well, did those other five people also take the time to follow up the two, three, six, seven times that it might take to get that account open in the first place? Probably not, but let's say they did. Well, then did those same five people scan the 10,000 SKU catalog, both manually and with the scanner that, you know, that most people aren't going to do? Probably not. So like when you look at it that way, it's, you could have the same supplier as a hundred other people, but if those hundred other people aren't actively analyzing every product that that supplier has to offer every day, then there's always going to be products that slip through the cracks and there's always going to be opportunity. Hey guys, wanted to take a quick second and thank you for listening to the Clear the Shelf podcast. My magnanimous co-host Chris Rasick has put together a gift for you for being a listener. It's called the Monthly Goal Tracking Spreadsheet and it's free. The spreadsheet will help you break down and track how much you've purchased, which should be a leading indicator of how much you will sell, and then you'll be able to track how much you've sold as well as your estimated monthly profit on a daily basis. This will all feed into the daily averages so you can ensure that you're on track to meet your goals each and every month. 
Grab it for free today over at cleartheshelf.com forward slash goal dash tracking. Thanks again for being a listener. Now back to the show. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, and, and that kind of mirrors uh, what we talk about with arbitrage, you know, because I, so think about the person asking that question, you know, like, so other people are going to be talking to these, uh, you know, potential wholesale accounts. So, you know, it, it kind of implies like, so I'm not even going to bother, you know, so what are mm-hmm. you going to do? You're going to do arbitrage instead, because do you think other sellers haven't walked through the aisles that you're going to do? You know, right. you're going to walk through on if you're doing retail arbitrage. Do you think you're going to find, a, you know, a quarter of Walmart.com that that is unexplored? You know, right. <laughs> you're not. Exactly. So it's, uh, you know, it's similar. It kind of mirrors each other, you know, and, and it mm-hmm. even with arbitrage, you know, it's like, are you going to go the extra step and actually manually type something in instead of just scanning a barcode? You know, it's right. I love uh, this is the quote we should have used last week, Chris, but uh, there was a great quote. Uh, it says, uh, the extra mile is never crowded. Yep. You know, I thought, and, and it's, and it's absolutely true. And it's, uh, you know, it's good advice uh, in, in, in both formats. So it's, totally. before you, before you ask the next question, it, that kind of reminds me when I was doing a fair amount of retail arbitrage and I would be in a TJ Maxx, a Ross, a Marshall's or whatever, some of the best products that I ever sold uh, I know that a reseller had been there first because the, the stickers were already pulled back on the <laughs> barcodes, you know, but I did, I took yeah. the time to find the two pack, find the three pack. Uh, and then I would clear a shelf of something. I know someone else just totally was like, Oh, this isn't profitable. Right. Cause you probably title searched it and you, you didn't just say, Oh, the no UPC match, this one must not be good. And then move on to the next. And actually I had somebody today, I think DM me on Twitter and ask a what I thought was a really good question. They said, Hey, of all your inventory, what percentage was found via using a scanning tool like analyzer.tools and then what percentage was found via actual like one-on-one manual reverse sourcing. And while we don't have that, I mean, we don't track that metric one, I think it would be something interesting to track, but two, I mean, I'd say 95% of our inventory was sourced manually via like not using a scanner. I mean, we, we still have a scanner. We use it when it's like a 10,000 SKU list, but my VAs know that our rule basically is if you use a scanner, you, you can use the scanner, but you have to go back through manually and source it line by line. Even if it's a 10,000 row Excel sheet and it takes you the next week and a half, that's, that's what we do. So that's how you find all the best products. Absolutely. So we, uh, you talked about scout in the show, uh, beforehand, uh, and then while you're at the show, this, the question applies uh, to both scenarios. Like, how do you choose a supplier to re- what what boxes are checked uh, that, that makes you say, OK, this is a go? Yeah. So you mean as far as like in the trade show context? Yes. Sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, we keep our criteria pretty simple when deciding who to reach out to, like when looking at people on trade show lists. So pretty much it comes to are they a, are they the are they the, a brand or are they a distributor and so if they're the brand themselves then the question is are their products already listed on amazon and are they selling well and if the answer is yes then we're going to put them on our list now typically ideally they're either carry they're either being sold through other third parties or through the brand themselves uh but if they're selling directly to amazon first party then i mean it's not a deal breaker right because a lot of people want to get away from that so that makes them a good target 
So on the brand side, like I said, if they check those boxes, then we'll put them on our list and we'll talk to them. On the distributor side, if they carry brands that are selling well on Amazon, then we're going to talk to them. Like pretty much simple as that, because we don't know what their pricing is going to be, right? As long as we know that, hey, they carry products that are, there's at least demand for what they're carrying, right? We could we could sell it if we could get a good price, then then it just comes down to pricing and then it's just a, then that's just the conversation from there. When when you go to a trade show, whether it's ASD or, you know, Sweet and Snacks or whatever show you're going to go to, uh, and you know that, well, I, you may not have gone into ASD saying, okay, I want to drop this kind of money at the show. Uh, but how important are show specials when you go and make a purchase? Yeah, so they're definitely important. And the thing, so this is something I learned because honestly, ASD was only my second show, but I, I mean, I think I learned a ton from it. And what I learned going into it next time is that, so ASD at least is, it's a Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday show. So it's literally like five days long. Now the Saturday, the first day is like a, the VIP buyer event. From what I was told, I believe you, you think, I think you need an invite to come on Saturday and, and you have to be invited by a vendor. And I was told this is when like the big buyers come. So like Goodwills, they're buying. Somebody said like Walmart. Like so that's Saturday is when all the big guys go in and, and place big orders. And so from what I understand is like the deals are so good on Saturday that you want to be at the door at 9 a.m. on Saturday placing orders as soon as possible. And that's how you're going to get the best deals. We didn't I didn't show up until Sunday afternoon and we still found some good deals. But I guarantee you we missed like 80 percent of what was there. Mm-hmm. So um and sorry, remind me of the question. I just I got off on a little tangent there. Oh yeah, no problem. No, I just wonder how important are show specials when you make. Oh, the show specials. Them? Yeah. So, so the <clears throat> distributors almost always going to have better pricing at the show. You know, they're there at the show to sell more, to to make you know to do deals and, and bring on new customers. So, but a lot of th- a lot of the times, show pricing is still good for either like the week after the show or the whole month after the show. I think it's pretty much going to be supplier specific, but it definitely helps to write deals at, or write orders at the show because of availability. Cause a lot of stuff's going to get sold out from under you. But as far as, as far as the pricing that you get at the show, you can typically, like I said, you can keep, you can get that pricing for at least the next few days or the next few weeks. And so from, in that case, like what you want to buy is sold out, it's not as important to place it at the show because you can still get the pricing for the next few weeks. Very cool. So um, I, I know you you uh, told us a little bit about the uh, the conversation that you had with the CEO, of the no Amazon seller. But uh, uh, like, what what tips would you give for you know the the people that didn't respond to your your pre show emails or you know a, a booth that you walk up on with no prep? What advice can you give for you know kind of a cold open or a cold call? Um, and uh, and any tips on how you try to steer those conversations to your benefit? Yeah. And so I'll just talk, I guess, in the trade show context again, just because I'm fresh off of it. So really my strategy for just initiating the conversation with any, any vendor at ASD was to just walk up to their booth because every, every booth is going to, they're going to have their products displayed. If they're a distributor, they're going to, they're going to have the brands they carry laid out. If they're the brand, they're going to have a ton of their stuff laid out. So really I just go up to their stuff and just start touching it. Like I just start showing a genuine interest in what they carry. And so like, if it's a distributor, it's cosmetics. Well, I'm just looking at stuff like, and I'm making comments to myself. Like, oh yeah. Like we've carried that before. And just, 
really just trying, just waiting until somebody from the supplier like walks up to you and talks to you. And then from there, it's more so, uh, hey, you know, either we've carried this before, this is a good product, or like in the case of the CEO where there's a lot of self-defense stuff. And yeah, we had carried Taser before, but I really didn't know anything about his stuff. I'm like, hey, just, t- you know, tell me about this product right here. It's really cool. And like a lot of these, a lot of these reps or, you know, a lot of the people you're talking to are the owners and they're super passionate about the products and they'll just go off on it. And so I just, you know, let them talk and then to try to bring it back to the Amazon conversation and like how we can work with them. I always just ask like, Hey, do you guys have a strategy when it comes to Amazon? And typically we're talking to a brand, then they're going to go out, you know, they're just going to start talking like, Oh yeah, we've got that handled or, Oh, you know, that's been a nightmare. Let me tell you about it. And then those kind of conversations are the best because then you just shut up and let them talk and then try to, you know, ask more questions to, to really establish your credibility there. So it's more so just asking questions, getting a feel for what's their goal. What is like, what is their temperature as far as Amazon? Are they like that guy where they don't want to hear anything about it? Or are they, are they open to it? But you know, they're a little hesitant. So you kind of got to hold their hand. It's more so at the end of the day, just positioning yourself as the expert and asking questions to asking questions that like, you know, that their answers are going to lead them to wanting to work with you ideally. Nice. I like that. I I've got a little bit of a, of a side question here. Mm-hmm. Um, have you personally ever been in sales or have you taken any sales training? Cause I'm, I don't know, I'm hearing a lot of things, you know, that I may have heard like a, a Dale Carnegie Carnegie course that I took, you know, when I was selling insurance and stuff like that. So, yeah, so that was my, my first job out of college. Well, I guess even before college, like in college, I was, I always went door to door every summer selling just pressure washing services. That was just like a business I'd done during the summer with myself and a couple of buddies usually. So like that door to door sales experience definitely helped. Uh, my first job out of college was, and B2B tech sales. So I was working for IBM selling data storage for two years. And so the sales training that they put us through, which was like the, the first year and a half of my two year career, there was all sales training. And like, it's, it was pretty well regarded, I think is like one of the better corporate sales training programs around. And so, I mean, that for sure was very beneficial and just having made like thousands of cold calls and just all kinds of sales over the years. That's, that's kind of like what's fed into it. Awesome. I, 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 I knew you had to have some sort of, of sales background. Yeah, um, for sure. So this is, this is one of the questions that probably comes up a lot when it comes to wholesale. And you kind of already touched on it that you're working on, you're working on uh, increasing your margins this year, which mm-hmm. probably one of the better answers I've heard from a guest on the podcast. Everyone wants to increase sales. You don't often hear people say, oh, well, yeah, increasing sales would be great, but uh, I would prefer to increase margins. So yeah. in the wholesale game, are the margins slimmer uh, you know, in general compared to RAOA? Uh, and if someone wanted to move from the RAOA world to wholesale, I guess what kind of margin should they set their target on? Yeah, so... I guess to answer the first question, like in general, are the margins a little slimmer? I mean, I'd say in general, yes, but that's not to say that like we have plenty of SKUs where our margin is 25, 30% and they sell at a decent volume too. So I think it's just like OARA where you've got your lower volume or sorry, your, your lower, well, I guess your lower volume, higher profit products and maybe only sell a few a month, but they're super profitable. And then on the other side, you've got your higher volume, 
lower margin products where you don't make a killing, but you're flipping them left and right. Well, wholesale is the same thing. So, but I, but I'd say in general, the margins probably skew a little on the lower end because of the fact that you're able to buy thousands of units at a time. And so because you have access to that scale, sometimes you are willing to take a little lower margin for, for that volume. But, um, let's see, you're saying like margins to expect, I guess, in the wholesale business. Is that the second part of the question? Yeah. 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 So I, I think like an, if you can get around an 18% gross margin in, in wholesale, like at scale, then that's solid. That's, that's pretty solid in my opinion. I mean, I know for us, we're shooting for 20% gross this year and that's going to be like, that's going to be pretty hard to hit. I mean, that's like a, I mean, essentially a stretch goal. Like if we can gross 20%, then if fully remote, then I think we're doing really good, but really the goal is to shoot for 20 and land around 18. So 18% gross is pretty solid. I mean, if you're netting 10%, then that's a solid wholesale business. If you're netting any more than 10%, then that's really good. And I'd say less than 10% and you can probably tighten things up here or there to, to get to around 10%, which is where you want to be net. And that's before taxes. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think that's solid. You know, that's a solid number. I know that a, a lot of the naysayers, a lot of the people will be like, Oh, well, those numbers, you know, don't make sense. But I know that you're never going to scale to the size of a, a Walmart or a target, but Walmart and target run at two and 3% respectively. Right. Uh, and, you know, and that's our competition, you know, we're, we're retailers just like them, even though we're not at their scale. So mm -hmm. being able to run at 10% margins is, is really pretty solid. And I think people should maybe, um, manage their expectations properly when, you know, thinking about this kind of business, especially now that it's right. much more mature than it was when, you know, I got started. So, yeah. And I feel like it's the same people that are expecting to have really good margins. It's the, those same people that are on tactical arbitrage, setting their filters to, you know, $5 profit, 50% ROI, a hundred sales a month. So it's just not always going to be the case, unfortunately, although there is the, there are opportunities like that out there for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, search results will just be a, a little bit from the, what we might be looking at if you're setting yeah. to there. Um, right. <laughs> So what, uh, so say you have a, a, a positive result, a positive conversation, you know, maybe a little bit, what, what does the follow-up process look like? I know you said you, you want to schedule a zoom, but, uh, what kind of things do you do? And what kind of schedule should you set as far as follow-up goes? Yeah. And so are we still talking ASD specific again? No, e either way. In e general. Yeah. Cold calling or, or whatever your other method might be. Yeah. So I, I always say it depends on the conversation and really how it went. So it's like, if I'm talking to, let's say a brand and I get a hard no, and they're just like, Hey, no Amazon sellers right now, not open to it, whatever. Then, and if the brand looks promising, right? If they're a good size or doing good volume, there's obviously that barrier to entry. And I think that I can work with them at some point, then I might follow up with them once a quarter or once a month or once every two months in perpetuity, really until they tell me like either, Hey, stop calling. Or, you know, I mean, really, there's not a whole lot they could say that unless it was just like, hey, stop calling. I would probably continue following up with them forever if I saw the opportunity. It, but if it's let's say it's a distributor that, you know, they're in a niche, but there's 10 other distributors that carry the same stuff that they carry. Well, if they shoot me down and say, hey, no Amazon sellers or, or shoot me down for whatever reason, 
then I mean, we might reach out every, you know, four or five months just to see if they've changed their policy. But that's not one we're going to pursue as heavily because, again, it's, there's 10 other there's most likely 10 other suppliers that carry those same brands. So I think when it comes to when it comes to follow up consistency, it's just how promising does the lead look? And, you know, what did the conversation look like, too? Because if you had a good rapport with the person, but they said, hey, sorry, just timing's not good. Well, then I might check in every two weeks. In that case, if you know, with that person specifically, if I if I had a good conversation, so it's really very much dependent on supplier type and conversation. I like that. What? So let's let's shift gears just a touch and let's talk a little bit about your product selection. Uh, are you are you looking to go wide? Are you looking to go deep, or do you want to do both? Um, yeah, I guess. I guess what's your sourcing criteria look like? Yeah, so definitely both. And I mean, our our motto has always been like go wide to start, and then we typically we always do at least one test order, and I mean, really two, sometimes even three, before we really go deep on a product. And as far as sourcing criteria, so we don't have a set in stone like oh we need to be netting x dollars of you know x number of dollars per unit for us to even look at it. I mean, our whole thing is look, we want to net ideally net. $250 per ASIN that we carry per month. And so if that means that we only sell one unit per month, but it's a $250 profit sale, well then great, that product works for us. And if it means we only make 50 cents a unit, but we sell 500 a month, as long as the gross margin is not you know, terrible, then, then that's one that we'll look at too. So that's why I, I just really try hard not to put constraints around what we're looking for because the VAs are doing all the sourcing. And I mean, you guys know how typically if you give them like a hard constraint like that, even if you say, oh, well, there are exceptions can be made and you know, this and that, it's just sometimes it just doesn't, it's not as easy to convey with them. So I try to keep it open-ended because a lot of times they find stuff that think, you know, might not be a good fit that ends up being great. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as like inventory management, like what uh, mm -hmm. the, the length of time that you're willing to hold, hold something and then the amount of time before you decide to liquidate got it yeah so i mean inventory management is something it's definitely not been our strong suit and something that we've that we've just been trying very hard to get better at and like in my opinion that's the biggest lever for us as far as profitability and just increased sales is getting better at inventory management but as far as how long we're willing to hold a product for us i mean typically when we're buying like a test order is going to be anywhere from two weeks to 30 days worth of a product and then once we start to, once we decide we're going to go, you know, I guess deeper on that product is like a regular product for us. So we're going to hold, try to hold about 45 days worth of product. And so if anything has been sitting longer than 60 days within our repricer, then once a week when we're going over our repricer, we're like, all right, anything that's been sitting longer than 60 days, we start to liquidate. Now that doesn't mean we start selling at a loss or even break even, but we start, to, we change our settings to start to lower the price on that. And if something's been sitting, let's say 90 days or longer, then we are pretty much liquidating that at any cost and getting our money back and moving on. That's perfect. So I'm going to ask a question that I'm pretty sure I, I know the answer to, and you probably already kind of answered it. You said you're fully remote. So, mm -hmm. uh, are you guys using prep centers or your own mm -hmm. warehouse and employees in, in your operation? So we're using a prep center currently. We, for a well, I guess our, our kind of progression was when we first started in wholesale, 
are, we thought that we're all oh, we're only going to work with suppliers that ship directly to Amazon. Well, mm -hmm. come to find out, that's not entirely realistic. But the first few that we worked with did do that. So really, for the first six months or longer, we didn't have to get space because everyone was shipping to Amazon. Well, when we realized some suppliers wouldn't do that, we got a storage unit, and then we got two storage units, and we got three storage units, and then we got a two thousand square foot kind of like smaller warehouse condo type place. And I was managing two employees out of that and very, very quickly found out that one, that's not my strong suit Two, I don't enjoy it. And three, we just like, I just sucked at it. Like we were losing money definitely because of having the, the warehouse. Mm -hmm. So, and we had bought that warehouse. So we actually ended up selling it and then outsourced to a 3PL. And it's like, as soon as we outsourced to the 3PL, we actually started to scale because we were able just to double down on, our core competency, which is sourcing, and just completely didn't have to worry about the logistics side. Perfect. Hey, you're you're not you're definitely not the only person that I've I've heard say this exact same thing. And I and I mean, uh, I know some sellers who are you know doing twenty million, thirty million dollars a year, uh, and switch to prep centers from having their own team. Uh, mm -hmm. And they said that it was like the best decision that they ever made. Uh, <laughs> right. So yeah. It's definitely not my strong suit either. So if I were to decide to pivot to wholesale, I know that it would be it would be 100% prep center for me. So that's good to know. Well, and because the way I see it, it's like if you have your own warehouse, the whole goal of your warehouse is to not lose you money. Like it's never going to make you money. So unless you're running it perfectly, then chances are it is losing money. And not only is it doing that, but you're having to spend so much time and so much effort just to keep it running smoothly. And I mean, it's basically a second business. And again, a second business that doesn't make you any money. So, I mean, it, to think that you're going to get like, for example, Amazon lit their prep cost per ASIN, they said in Miami is a dollar per unit. And, you know, all due respect to them, they're crushing it. But I pay less than a dollar per unit for prep and I don't have to deal with, you know, 50 employees or 60 employees or however many they have to deal with. And I'm willing to make that trade every time. So. That's yeah. why I just don't really see the appeal of the warehouse. And, and I think that was a limiting belief for me in the past that, oh, to do eight figures or to really do big in this business, you've got to have a warehouse. Well, I'm, I mean, seeing firsthand, that's just simply not the case. Yeah. And, and you don't have to bust one of your employees doing, uh, doing drugs in the bathroom, which right. that's, a, that's a real story. I, I know someone. Yours, who, your story? No, it was not mine. Uh, I have had to, I have I've had to fire people uh, that did sourcing for me for you know being drunk on the job, um, you know stuff like that. But I I've I know other people who've caught people doing like you know smoking meth in the bathroom at the warehouse. Uh, had to get rid of them. So it's probably a good prepper. Yo, oh, yeah, yeah, they were. They were they were focused. They were fast. Uh, you know, you just can't let them drive the forklift around. Right. <laughs> I tell you, I, I'm a one man operation, and I hate employees too. So I, I feel you there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, let's talk about uh, discounts. Um, how or when um, do you ask for them? And then how do you how do you kind of gauge on on how to push for them? You know, and or push for more even. Yeah. So, I mean, we, I guess how we've started doing it is, and I get this question all the time. So like, if it's a first, if it's a supplier that we just started working with for the first time and it's our first order with them, then typically we're not going to ask for a discount unless we're at least around like the 10 K number on that first order. 
And so if we are, then typically I just go to them and, and like, I try to ask for it in a, in like a non-direct way. I just, I send them the, or I guess we will send them the PO and it's not, it won't say purchase order. It might say like draft or something, or we might even just send them like an email saying, Hey, this is what we're thinking about ordering, or this is our tentative order. And it's just got skew and then quantity. And then I'll just say, what's your best price or what can you do as far as pricing? And just, and just ask it kind of open-ended like that instead of, Hey, can we have a discount or Hey, can we get 10% off or something like that? Just saying like, Hey, what, you know, what can you do for us here? And all, every time they will, they will give you a better price, especially if, if the dollar amount is, you know, at that number a little higher. Uh, we, I mean, we will still do some like smaller orders from time to time. Maybe it's like one or two products that we're running low on. And because the subtotal is lower, we just won't ask for one. But um, yeah, it, and it definitely just comes with the relationship too. like after a while, for example, one of our bigger tool and automotive suppliers, we don't have this rep anymore, unfortunately. But when we did, his whole thing was like, listen, just tell me the SKU that you want. And I will tell you just like the lowest price I can go. So just like know that the price I give you, like I simply can't go lower. So we were just, we got to the point where we were just like firing off a list of SKUs to him every, every couple of days. And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here on price. And then it's like, all right, two of those work great. And then we were also able to say, uh, you know, for example, if they carried a certain brand, well, we were sending them SKUs that they didn't carry, but they had the ability to special order. And he would be, he would say, Hey, we're here, here, here. And then, you know, a lot of times we're able to, to do some additional orders that way. And again, those prices were discounted because we made it a point to say we're buying in volume and the relationship was there too. That's awesome. I, two, two quick things out of there that uh, just in case people missed, uh, one, I see the question, how do I get discounts from suppliers all the time? Uh, you know, and, and it seems like people want that on the front end, like arbitragers are used to being like, I, I, I'm going to use coupons. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to get the lowest price possible. And they want to be able to do that up front and in a relationship game. That's just not the way it is. Right. Uh, and, uh, and then two, you dropped another, uh, category, uh, which I think people should think about when I, when I talk to people, they're like, Oh, Hey, where can I find this kind of wholesaler? And, and after I tell them how to use Google, uh, I'm like, well, everyone is asking for a grocery distributor or yeah. a beauty distributor and that's it. And you just mm -hmm. said tools and automotive, which is another place that I think is probably underutilized for people who are interested, uh, in, totally. you know, in wholesale. So yeah, that's a, that's a great one. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. We've only got a couple more questions, so we're going to try to rapid fire through these as, as fast as we can. Yeah, we're fine. Um, can can you share a little bit about what your day-to-day -day operation uh, looks like? You know, what are, what are you doing? What is your team doing? Uh, and, um, and I guess, what do you want to get off your plate as well? Yeah, so the day-to-day, -day, so really as far as like this, the team structure is concerned. So uh, right now, like the way I see, and we've got this kind of written out as far as our org charts. So at the top is me, right, over the, I guess, over the operation and my goal and my role is to primarily to close new accounts, right? So whether those be brand direct accounts, new distributor accounts, really just high level trying to close new suppliers. And then also networking, because that has by far been the highest ROI thing I've done in any aspect of business, hands down. And then also just like brand building now that I'm kind of doing the Twitter thing, the YouTube thing, really just getting myself out there has brought a lot more opportunities. So I'd say those three tasks are like my responsibility. And 
my goal is to get it to where my entire day is focused on only those three things. And I'm not quite there yet, but that's the goal. And then so under me, like the seat under me would be like operations manager. And so right now my head VA is in the in that operations manager role, but she's also in the buyer role. So I see operations manager as essentially being the one that manages the VAs. And so she's doing that management, but she's also my head buyer as well. And so the head buyer essentially the two i have two sourcing vas and those two sourcing vas are feeding leads to my buyer and so let's say the sourcing vas find 10 new asins this week for us to buy well then my buyer is taking that list of 10 and maybe she's saying okay we're actually only going to buy these seven right so she's kind of filtering that down to the ones that we actually want to buy and so she's putting together a po for those seven and once a week every wednesday we have our buyer call where we sit down and we look at, all right, what are all the orders that we're going to place this week? Like for like test orders, so like any new products that we're going to buy. And then what are we going to reorder based on whatever's been selling well, profitably that we're running low on. And so that's kind of like the buyer's whole role is to, is to just tee up as many orders as possible for stuff that we're testing out and for stuff that we need to reorder. And then we've got an admin who right now he's only four hours a day, but his whole job is to take care of all the the software management, the spreadsheet management, the email, the calendar, all of that, anything that just doesn't move the needle. And that does, he's, he's basically got to make sure the buyer stays buying and that I stay focused on that higher level stuff. And then, so we brought on an, like kind of an executive assistant. She's starting on Monday actually, where she's actually going to be taking over like my email, my schedule, all my personal tasks, like anything that, you know, I would do just personally uh to keep kind of the admin freed up to really just focus on the amazon side it's like the executive assistant's not going to be doing any anything amazon related the admin's just fully like amazon admin related and but yeah so i mean i guess that's really the day-to-day -day. it's like the two sourcing vas are eight hours a day feeding leads to my buyer the buyer's putting together orders uh typically i'm sitting down with the buyer and the sourcing team members too because it helps them learn and we're going through line by line like all right we're going to order this like she basically proposes a PO and I say like, yes, yes, yes. Or, and, or no, you know, let's change the quantity here or no, we're not going to buy this product. And this is why. So like the whole thing is really like a, a teaching or like a coaching thing. And so the goal is to get the buyer to where she's autonomously able to pull the trigger on certain orders or so, like orders up to a certain dollar amount, right? Where I don't need to give her approval, but every week we're going to review it to make sure that she made the right choice. And then, and the goal is to kind of like slowly enter up. And I mean, really she's there. Like, I, I think I could let her pull the trigger on, on orders up to like a couple grand maybe, but uh, I just, I want to just be abundantly clear before I hand that off. So I'd say that's another one of my day-to-day -day tasks too, is just like re trying to review orders with her because that's how she learns. And really that's how we make more money is just buying more. Mm -hmm. So I've got two follow-ups for that. Uh, how long did it take you to get her to that level of competency? So she's the, well, she's, I guess the, the most tenured VA that I have currently. So she started with me in November of 2019. So she's been, and she was brand new to Amazon at the time. So like everything she's learned, she's learned from scratch. But as far as like her being in the actual buyer role, I'd say it's been over the last probably like, nine months to a year i've started to really like try to get her more comfortable with hey like how many would you order in this case right instead of just saying hey we need to order 48 like just mm -hmm. slow and it was a slow process of like trying to transfer 
uh, decision-making authority and like just trying to think critically about that stuff to her. And so, if, I mean, if I were to go back and like actually say like, all right, the goal is to get you in this role, then it probably could have done it sooner. But really about, a, I'd say at least a year of like focused effort on like getting her good at this specific task. Awesome. Now the, the second follow-up to that is what are the important metrics and KPIs that you pay attention to every day or week in, in your business and, uh, and with your, with your team? Yeah. So here, let me pull up my sheet. So every, every Wednesday morning we go over, we have like just a, basically we call it our weekly team call where it's like less than 15 minutes. We go over our, our KPIs for the week, like our, our company KPIs. And then we go over the individual KPIs as well. And so the, uh, the KPIs we track on a company level are just weekly revenue, number of ASINs shipped. Uh, then we cover the percent coverage of our top ASINs. And so what that means, and that's, that's like the buyer's number one KPIs. And then what that means is so of our top 30 ASINs, we want to have at least 80% of them in stock at all times, because we know we're realistically never going to be able to have hundred percent of them in stock because of supply issues or whatever. But if we can keep 80% of our top products in stock at all times, then we will be perfectly fine. And like transparency, we, I don't think we've ever even been close to having 80% in stock at all times yet. We've had really good months. So it's like, if we can just get to 80%, then we could be in a really good spot. So like, that's her, that's her primary KPI that she's held accountable for. And then we've got, and these are more so like, I guess these aren't like, you know, lead measures, but just again, stuff we're tracking. So it's like number of active FBA ASINs, uh, number of new SKUs purchased that week. So, you know, how many new SKUs are we test ordering this week? Because that way we can say like, all right, if we, if we on average are testing five new SKUs a week, then we know that of those five, we're typically going to replenish, you know, one to two or something like, for example. So just having that metric to be able to look back, uh, then we're looking at, so our percentage of our, of our freight shipments picked up on time, because that's one of the admins primary KPIs is that if we schedule a freight pickup, it's gotta be picked up on time because every day that that spends not being checked out at Amazon is enough is we're, we're losing money by the day. Um, and then we've got our invoiced dollar amount spend that week. So it's like not just how much did we order in total, but how much did we actually pay for? Because that way we know how much is actually shipping this week mm -hmm. to our 3PL. Um, and then we've got just accounts payable and it's just, we just want to, I just want to know at all times, like how much do we owe? So that way we just don't get over leveraged. And then we track our total spend for that week. So not only what do we get invoice for this week, but what do we, what do we order in total? You know, whether that be back orders or, you know, pre-orders or whatever. So that's the difference between that and then the invoice spend. And then the, uh, the sourcing team KPIs are just number of new SKUs approved for that week. How much, how much spend did that VA generate that week? And then what is the expected gross margin from that spend by VA? If that makes sense. Yes. Yeah, that does. And I'll I tell you, what, I actually, I really love that because I think that some people try to make this too complicated. Uh, and I feel like what you have set up is it's something I could explain to my nine-year-old. He may not totally get it, you know, mm -hmm. but I could at least take it and say, Hey, listen, here's what Corey shared with me. And I could, you know, explain that to him, which is honestly, that's what we need to do with business. Uh, we need to right. make it as simple as possible. Now 
I lied. There are a couple more follow-up questions here. So <laughs> yeah, you're fine. No, you're good. Uh, what? Uh, how often are you using like net terms in your business, and and what is your? Uh, I guess, are you using you know Amazon loans? Or are you using credit cards? Or or do you have a mix of all of these things? Uh, I guess what works best for you? Yeah, definitely a mix. And so we we have net terms with a few a few suppliers now i would say with all of our biggest ones we don't have net terms only because those suppliers just happen to have a policy that they don't extend terms to e-commerce retailers because they've been burned in the past mm -hmm. so that's something where we do try to revisit that every three to six months and we haven't had any luck yet but i do think we can i do think we can work that out with them but so like we're buying on terms from a couple suppliers not not really our main ones but it, it helps right wherever you can get it and then, I mean, every, but everything we're buying is on a credit card. So even if we're buying on terms and even if they're requiring us to pay with cash, I know we've discussed this tip before where we're using a service called Melio where we pay with credit card, but the vendor gets paid in cash. And so we just have to pay a 2.9% fee for that. So we're always using a credit card. Uh, we've got, I guess the way we're structured is like each each like bucket of, in, of our finances has its own credit card. So like inventory has its own bank account and its own credit card. OPEX has its own credit card and its own bank account. Freight and 3PL fees have their own bank account and their own credit card. So everything's on credit cards and everything's paid through that specific bank account. And that's because we follow profit first. And so that just makes things a lot easier. Um, but it's a, as far as like actual physical paying for the goods, it's anything, it's a credit card, um, net terms, or we have a line of credit with our bank that we tap into as well. And so the, and I guess how we approach that is every two weeks when we get paid out by Amazon, when we're making our, like when we're basically replenishing each bucket based on the profit first model, we don't take, we don't put any money into the profit bucket if there's a balance on the credit line. So like right now, I think our balance on the credit line is like 57 K or something. So it's like, we're not taking any profit until that's paid off. It's kind of how we that's kind of how we approach it because our goal is to just really really be not in debt if like whenever possible mm -hmm. and you know always paying the credit cards off in full every month and, and that's never an issue or anything awesome nice so um i'm curious is, is it uh, is it better to look for uh companies that are well-known brands or are there advantages to smaller niches or a even uh, what, to, how do you choose between those options? Yeah. So I think if you're like, if you're looking to sell big brand name products, like for example, maybe like Bayer or head and shoulders or Listerine or some of these brands, like you're going to have to buy them through distribution. So targeting just big distributors or regional distributors or even mom and pop distributors that carry brands like that is going to be how you get access to, to brands like that. Now, when it comes to these smaller, more niche brands or maybe they're in like a smaller category then a lot of the times you will have success going directly to the manufacturer and trying to open a wholesale account with them sometimes they'll even if they're a smaller brand they might push you to one of their distributors which in that case is fine but um that's kind of how i would approach it depending on like if you're trying to determine who should i reach out to based on like what i want to sell interesting like that all right, we should we should probably wrap this up. We're uh, we're a little over the the promised uh, timeline here, but I 
I want uh, people to be able to find you. Where is the best place to uh, follow you, reach out, uh, anything that you want to uh, share with folks before we wrap it up? Yeah, so definitely the easiest way to engage with me would just be on Twitter. And so it's just at my last name, first name. So at Ganim Corey. And that's G-A-N is in Nancy, I-M is in Mary, Corey. And on YouTube, I'm just at Corey Ganim. And so Twitter would be a lot easier if I was at Corey Ganim too. Some girl in Indiana that hasn't tweeted since 2012 has at Corey Ganim. So uh, maybe maybe Elon can help me out there. <laughs> we can figure something out. Right. Oh, perfect. And I'll make sure that I'll make sure links to both YouTube and Twitter are uh, are down below the show, uh, whether you're listening on YouTube or you're over uh, on your favorite podcast player. I'll make sure there are some easy links to get to there. Uh, dude, this was this was fantastic. Uh, I think I think this answered a ton of questions that people are interested in uh, or maybe even uh, fearful of when they want to uh, at least add wholesale to their uh, their sourcing tool belt. Uh, and I think this is going to be extremely helpful. So I appreciate you taking the time to, to hang out with us and, and talk about this, man. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. No, I love doing stuff like that. This, so I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, that's it for this week's episode. We'll be back uh, next week with uh, another episode, hopefully uh, nearly as good as this one. Uh, but until then guys, uh, good selling, stay safe out there and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Clear the Shelf with Chris and Chris. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot on your phone and share to Facebook, Instagram, or your favorite FBA group. And be sure to tag me and let me know why you liked it and what you'd like to hear more from us in the future. Also, I'd like to give you some free gifts for listening. Head over to rabbittrailchallenge.com and repricerchallenge.com for some free courses to further your business. Thanks for listening.